ever wonder what parenting is really like? Do you think that you're the only one that's struggling? Or have you missed out on that amazing hack everyone was talking about? Well, that sounds like you. Grab a seat and get comfy, as you'll be hearing real-life stories from parents that are on the same collective journey, a little thing called parenthood. We'll hear from parents, caregivers, and experts as we fumble through this wonderful path together. I'm your host, Rashida, and welcome to the Parents Connecting Podcast. Hi, everyone. It's Rashida, and welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to be wrapping up our three-part series in neurodiversity. I first brought this topic up in episode four, which was titled, Could Neurodiversity Explain the Challenges in Your Relationship? And, you know, oddly enough, it's been the most listened to episode. And I think that's because while parenting is a really challenging thing to navigate, so are relationships. This podcast is really centered around all facets of parenting life which includes relationships. And so when I brought on Grace Myhill, who you're gonna hear today again, she's a couples coach, a clinical consultant, and really a neurodiversity expert. And after having conversations with her, it became really clear pretty quickly that this was gonna be a really complex and layered topic that was gonna be worth a mini series. And so then we brought on episode six, which was titled, When Expertise Matters, Finding the Right Therapist or Counselor, as a way to really talk about the importance of finding someone to help and really someone that understands um, and can help navigate with a neurodiversity lens. And so I'm really happy to have been able to dive a little bit deeper into some of the neurological differences that really present themselves in these close relationships. So listen in as we walk through this topic. And if you haven't had the chance to go back and listen to episode four, That's where we really get into a broad overview of the relationship challenges, the constellation of traits to look out for, and it's really just a great conversation, and I learned a ton through that discussion. And so if you, after hearing these episodes, you're thinking, hmm, this might be something that I want to learn more about, I highly recommend you going to AANE's website and getting the course. There's a Couples 101 course that was really designed to give couples information and to normalize a lot of the challenges in these type of relationships and to make you feel that maybe you're, you know, you're not the only one. And I'll put all this stuff in the show notes. And if you use the code Rashida25, you're going to get a 25% discount off this course. There, there's nothing that I get back from this. It's just something that I took myself. And I can personally say that it is really worth your time. So let's get into this episode. Well, hi, everyone. Um, it's Rashida. and Welcome to the show. Today, we've got Grace Myhill back on the show. And uh, we're going to be diving a little bit deeper into some of the topics um, that we talked about in a previous episode. And if you haven't checked them out, um, please do so. We talk about neurodiversity, what it means. And we're going to go through that a little bit more in detail today from, and more specifically from a relationship aspect. So Grace, thank you so much for um, joining the, rejoining the show, I should say. Thanks for having me back. Sure. Happy to be here. So, so Grace, um, I mentioned, you know, we, we, we've talked about, you know, the term neurodiversity and what it means. And since the, since the first conversation that we had, um, you had brought up a couple of things in terms of um, what neurodiversity is. 
And so I kind of wanted to maybe just refresh everyone's mind as to what that terminology means, and then um, touch on the, um, the therapy aspect of it, being able to recognize it so that if maybe your therapist doesn't recognize it, maybe you yourself do and can um, be a advocate for yourself. And then the bulk of this is really, I wanted to unpack um, things from a relationship aspect, specifically the perspectives of if you're in a neurodiverse relationship, maybe you don't know it yet, um, maybe these things will come to light and have the perspectives of what some of what a person that's quote neurotypical and what somebody is from the non-typical point of view. So, um, so let's get into it. So why don't we talk about just what the term neurodiversity means and what, and, and, and def let's define it for everyone. Sure. Even that is not simple. There's nothing <laughs> simple about um, this work. So People define it differently. Um, I use it to refer to couples who think differently from each other, who have different neurologies. Um, in my world, that is usually someone on the spectrum, um, the autism spectrum, and someone who isn't. Now, if they're not on the autism spectrum, that doesn't mean they are neurotypical, though. There's often a pairing of partners in their relationship where one partner might be on the spectrum, but the other partner might have ADD or ADHD, which is also considered a neurodivergent brain in, in a lot of ways. Um, other people, you know, outside of my world, other people will use the term to refer to people with bipolar um, disorder or even a broader sense of uh, difference. Um, I think it was John Elder Robeson, who is a man on the spectrum, who's an advocate in this area, who says that neurodiversity is a natural mutation of, uh, of genes, really. You know, it is, um, there's nothing pathological about it. Um, it is a difference in the way uh, people think. So some people use the terminology these days because they feel it is less pathologizing than spectrum or um, autism spectrum disorder. Obviously anything that has disorder in it does not feel um, non-pathological. Um, and also in, in the UK, I think they use the term autism spectrum condition. Um, so they're trying to be less pathological, but still you're basically calling out that one person has something as opposed to one person is something. So there's also a lot of discussion in the community about um, person first language. I am an autistic adult versus I am an adult with autism. Now, you can't separate a person's neurology from who they are. Uh, and so it, and it is not something that one day you you have, and then another day you don't have. Okay. Um, you're born with it, you with the neurology, you live with it, you die with it. Your neurology is always your neurology. That said, though, I want to make sure that people really understand that I'm not saying that people on the spectrum can't change. And this is something that is out there in the literature, mostly written by um, maybe partners on this, partners in relationship with someone on the spectrum, um, and some professionals who say, you know, it's all on the non-spectrum partner to do the work in the relationship and the change. And I just want to say that's not my philosophy at all. I believe that nobody is trying to change a person. They're trying to change behaviors. 
behaviors that don't work for one or both of the partners or for the relationship. So in my work with coaching, it's really important to understand that, that people accept each other for who they are, but they're just trying to get more comfortable in some way. And sometimes that comfort is emotional and sometimes it's physical and sometimes it's both. And so, you know, the, the terms neurodiversity is meant to help people feel okay about who they are, right? To say that, you know, to say that they are a neurodiverse couple is not a negative thing. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because when somebody hears the word autistic or autism, there's, there's, I think, a stereotypical view of what that means. Because when that term came out, I think many years ago, and I'm not, and I'm, I'm no expert in, in any of the, in this field at all, but I'm just speaking from my, maybe my own personal experience and then um, and, and experiences when people kind of hear that term, there's like this, almost this fear built in because it, it means something where maybe on the lower functioning side of autism, right? But we talk about a spectrum, you know, and especially like in the media and like movies, I remember watching like when I was much younger, when anybody was autistic, in the movies, they had, they were much, they were maybe nonverbal. They were, you know, a, 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 had, a, had um, much more challenges in life. But now when we've termed this kind of spectrum, there are, and we kind of talk about the other side of the spectrum, we quote high functioning. And I think that term can maybe be a little bit of a misnomer because they're not necessarily, there's, there's things that they're brilliant at, right? So they could be on the Asperger side, could be really brilliant, but then they might be challenged in some of the social settings or interactions that are a lot more nuanced. And so I wanted to sort of dig in a little bit deeper around just what autism means, because I think that there really is such a misconception at least from my perspective, as I've learned more and more about autism and autistic traits, especially on that kind of higher end, that people will go their entire life, right? Especially as more information comes out and not having any clue that, oh, wait, maybe my neurology is different. And maybe this is why I had so many challenges. And the reason I want to dig into it a little bit even deeper is because, um, as I've learned more about it, you know, there's this normalization that happens when you just talk to somebody else and they're like, yeah, no, I have, I'm on, I'm on the spectrum and they're, they're like a psychologist or they're, you know, an engineer and, you know, and, and they just, they're just normal people, right. You know, they're doing, they're going about their days, but some of the differences that show up. Um, so I really think that like bringing awareness to individuals around like autism isn't this scary thing that means you can't do something. It's very much just a part of, it's just part of you and it's not a bad thing. Like you just, like you, like you said. Yeah. So like I said, none of this is uncomplicated. This is all, you know, so different for each individual. So just like you could see a person who is uh, clinically depressed versus a person who's, who feels depressed, Um, right. Sometimes a person who is clinically depressed can't function in the world. They can't work. They can't get out of bed. They, they need support to do everything. And even then they may not be able to do it and they may need disability, uh, to get by in this world because, you know, of the difficulties they have with their depression. Now, some people on the autism spectrum are also, uh, they are disabled in some way and they do need government help or they're, they're 
um, they're impacted less severely, but they still need an accommodation at work or at school. And for others, it's not a disability at all. It doesn't keep them from succeeding in some area like academics or, or the workplace, um, and they may excel there, but in their relationship, it may have um, a very profound impact. And we can talk a lot about that. Yeah, um, sure. when, we, when you mentioned high functioning, some people will say that can vary from day to day in a person mm. on the spectrum. If they're under a lot of stress, their functioning is not going to be nearly as good as when they're not. Um, Tony Atwood, who's the Australian psychologist, says that when a person on the spectrum is anxious, their IQ drops 30 points. And oh, when they're wow. angry, it drops another 30 points. And I think wow. what he's trying to say is that when you see a person on the spectrum who is anxious and or angry, they don't have all of their inner resources that they usually do. They're not capable of doing the things that they usually are, such as communicating um, in a way that that's effective. So, so really learning tools to keep yourself in a less anxious state is really, sounds like it's really critical so that you can utilize that part of your brain that helps you through that. That's fascinating. Interesting. Yeah. And it can change, you know, the functioning can change from hour to hour, which again, can be very confusing to a therapist who sees a version of a person in their office, even with a couple where the partner on the spectrum may be appearing to be very calm and very logical and very easygoing and agreeable. Um, but then an hour later at home or on the drive home in traffic or something changes in their environment or they're drained from masking in the therapist's office for that hour, um, they are not the same uh, presentation um, of a of a person that they were in the office. So the functioning terminology, I think is starting to get faded out um, mm, and it feels good. dismissive to some people and insulting to some people and it's confusing. Um, yeah. So I think we're moving away from that in the community. Oh, good. And so, and I, and so let's touch on just like the therapist side of things. Um, you know, on, on one of the shows that we had before you had mentioned that it, the importance of just therapists and coaches in this, in this realm that may deal with individuals to just be aware of the impact that maybe, um, neurodiversity can have not only the impacts, I think that that's the most obvious, but that it could be a factor and to not necessarily dismiss if there's all these issues, um, if you see it in a couples or even on the individual level, right? If somebody comes in, they're having all these issues with their partner, maybe their partner's not on board with just therapy in general. Um, and they're, and they're seeking out advice to, um, understand the, the loneliness and the kind of longing that could come along with being in a relationship with maybe somebody on the spectrum, um, because they don't have the levels of emotional connectivity that they need. So, um, so do you have any kind of comments on, on that aspect of, of the, of things? Yes. Um, so there's so much to say about what you just said, Rashida. Uh, <laughs> let me try to take one thing at a time. So, the loneliness. Um, for a lot of people who are with a partner on the spectrum, they came into the relationship with certain invisible expectations. They expected a neurotypical relationship. And that means they expected 
that the person they were going to be with was going to be thinking about the relationship the way they are, that they were going to want the same level of interaction, that they were going to want the same level of emotional intimacy and or physical intimacy, that they attribute um, meaning to behaviors in the same way as their partner. And when they are with someone who is on the spectrum, those things are not shared. The person on spectrum may not even know that there are these expectations on them to be relational in certain ways, to be communicative at certain times, to be intimate emotionally or physically. They may not know that they are expected to initiate certain behaviors. They may not know that they are expected to participate in certain ways. And so what starts to happen for most undiagnosed, unrecognized or unidentifiable um, couples as being neurodiverse, what happens is often the neurotypical interprets the lack of all of these things they are expecting to mean that their partner does not care about them. And in that interpretation, they start to feel confused or angry or hurt or lonely or some combination of all of these things. And it's also um, very confusing then for the partner in the spectrum who doesn't understand why their partner is acting differently. And they may feel criticized or they may feel rejected or they may feel like, unaffected, which is also surprising to the yeah. neurotypical partner, um, or they may feel like this is just a natural uh, succession of the trajectory of a relationship, because we have a lot of images in our society for getting into a relationship, how to, you know, how to date, how to go through the courtship period. We don't have a lot of images in our social media for how to be in a long-term relationship yeah, with all so of true. life's stressors. And what it looks like. I mean, I think that with, I mean, you mentioned social media and that's such a poignant thing to say because um, you do have images of like the happy couples or the, or the fun things that nobody really talks about. Just, I mean, when you're in a relationship and if you're married for however long you're married, honestly, whether it's two years or 10 years or 20 or 50 you know, there's so much mundaneness, right. Of just regular right. living, um, that is so significant, you know, that's like the significant part of your life. And then if you add children into the mix, it's very mundane. Sometimes you're getting up, you're making breakfast, you're making lunch, you're going, you know, dropping yes. kids off at school. And then, um, and so I, I think that that's a really interesting statement to say and, um, want, and I want more conversations around just like what regular life is, because I do think there is this comparative thing that happens with couples because you only see them for a certain period of time, especially in this really busy life that everybody leads. You see, you see somebody for an hour, maybe two, and you're sort of acting at your best. Right. And there's like all this stuff happening underneath that note you know, people get divorced and they're like, what happened? You guys were so happy because nobody really talks about all the stuff underneath. And I imagine that if you're in a neurodiverse relationship, it kind of is maybe a similar analogy where things seem kind of good, 
but for maybe one person and the other person feels so extremely different because of what you just described. Yeah. And sometimes if you look to their family of origins, they may have um, been in either partner may have grown up in a neurodiverse household. Mm -hmm. Um, That is one of the pairings that again, Tony Atwood talks about that partners on the spectrum tend to have um, certain partners themselves. And one of those categories is that their partner grew up in a neurodiverse family so that it wasn't so different seeming or the difference wasn't, wasn't off-putting. You know, maybe the difference was even a nicer version of what they had in their own family. So if you come to your relationship expecting that you're going to behave the way, you know, you saw your parents behave, um, well, that could be very different too for the different people. Um, and if it was a neurotypical relationship, that could be true too. But the difference would be you would talk about it and you would be able to say, so what do we want for our family? And let's do it the way it feels good to us and let's make changes. And those changes wouldn't be so difficult to put into place. But when you're dealing with a neurodiverse couple, a lot of those kinds of conversations are difficult. And there is a trait of cognitive inflexibility Um, that's part of the autism spectrum for a lot of people, it is hard to just make a change, especially if you're not being taught in a very concrete behavioral way, here's how to make the change. But just Mm -hmm. to say to someone, you know, go home and be more empathic, go home and be more intimate. They may say yes, but they don't know how to do that. Right. You don't know what you don't know. I mean, that's the truth. Like, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And they may think they're doing it because they're thinking about their partner more, but that doesn't translate to any behavioral change that their partner feels um, or experiences. So do you have some example? So can we talk, maybe maybe some examples might be helpful for people because when you said, I I mean, I wrote down invisible expectations because I think just as everybody I think has expectations, but when you like when I hear expectations, that seems like a intentional thing, right? But when you say right. they're invisible or, un- or subconscious, it's, you just don't even know they exist. You just, if I have, if I'm asking you a question, I'm assuming that you're going to answer because that's like the normal course of, you know, uh, what, what right. I would quote expect. Um, but sometimes I think we had mentioned this on, on one of the other calls, you had said sometimes people in a neurodiverse relationship, one person will make a statement or say something with sort of this underlying quote expect, and I put that in quotes because I think it's just expectation seem like such a strong word. It's just the normal course of what you think, you know, uh, you'd respond or I'd expect some sort of, you know, response, but maybe to the, to the non-neurotypical, they think what you didn't, and it's not an, again, it's like a subconscious thing. We even actively ask me a question, like, what do I need to respond to? And so these are like specific. So I, I think it's helpful to like, maybe walk through some specifics of like, where do you see the struggles in relationships of things that seem like something that has just happened, you know, in a normal relationship, you mentioned it's a normal trajectory. Oh, okay. We've been married, you know, 20 years. This is just how it is. What do you, how do you distinguish like what, you know, normal course of relationship challenges to something that's more neurological? Sure. Um, so a really basic expectation for a lot of neurotypicals in a long-term secure relationship is that you're going to get into bed together. You're going to have a little pillow talk. You're going to connect. You're going to have some conversation that's light and maybe even a little flirty and maybe even 
a little bit just intimate. And then you're going to go to bed together in some way with some nice physical contact, whether it's just a kiss goodnight or whether you're going to spoon for a bit and snuggle or you're going to have physical intimacy. You know, any of those are often expectations that will happen for um, most neurotypical partners when they're in that part of their relationship. Now for a person on the spectrum, they come home from a day at work and they are pretty much spent, but they do try to um, hold it together for a little bit of, you know, interaction in the evening um, around household things. So maybe they have to still muster up some energy to do the dishes, or maybe they have to muster up some energy to help with the kids or something. But by the end of the night, most of the time, the end of the evening together, most of the time they're done. They're done relating. They're done interacting. They may even be done communicating. And they also may have a desire for some downtime and they create that opportunity by staying up later than their Mm. partner. So they're hoping the whole family will go to sleep and it will finally be quiet and they can finally do what they need to do. Now, for some people that's uh, catching up with the bills because of executive function challenges, which is another trait, they may take longer to do things and they may need more time to manage the responsibilities in the evening. So they may have to read their mail and pay bills and do things in the evening that just take them longer, or they may have a hard time disconnecting from work. Their brains may still be there and they may need to kind of go back to work in the evening on their computer or in their thoughts even, or they may need to really check out with whatever their special interest is. For a lot of people, it's video gaming. Uh, for other people, it just might be, you know, watching their favorite movie or reading their, you know, material or researching something. Or for some, it's like tinkering, you know, rebuilding an old car or, um, you know, fixing things um, but or wood shop or something. Uh, but whatever it is, none of this has been communicated. So then the dynamic that happens is the partner goes to up to the bedroom is, or over to the bedroom, whatever, and is waiting on some level, whether it's conscious or unconscious, they're kind of waiting for their partner to show up for their sort of fun, intimate time together. And then they're waiting. Yeah. yeah, They're waiting. The the other partner on the spectrum has no idea that their partner is waiting for them. And so they're doing their own thing in their mind. They're thinking everyone's asleep. They finally are free to do their thing. And then the next day, their partner may be, you know, snippy with them because they feel hurt. They feel rejected. They were waiting. And this is not a one-off thing. This is like a, you know, night after night after night after night kind of thing. But sometimes people don't first say in a neutral way, like, hey, um, I think we're on different pages. Right, you know, right. I thought we were going to do this. What were you going to do? Instead, they react. They react from a place of feeling, what did I do wrong? Mm-hmm. Right. So they take it personally. They start to think, well, he, he or she doesn't like me anymore. He or she isn't attracted to me anymore. Maybe if I do these things, then they'll be attracted to me again. So, or they'll be interested or they'll want to do these things. So they'll 
start trying and trying. And the more they try and try, it doesn't matter because they're trying for the wrong reason. You know, their, their partner is not rejecting them, is not unattracted to them. They're just on a different planet and they're thinking something entirely different. Now, once that starts to happen and the intimacy breaks down and, you know, because of hurt feelings and then being critical and distant and withdrawing, it starts a whole dynamic going. Then when you have something as mundane as, you know, who's going to wash the dishes after dinner, you know, and you can't even like have a conversation about the dishes because maybe you're asking your partner in the spectrum to do the dishes and they say they will, but then they don't. And you're wondering like, okay, so I can't even trust them to do the dishes. How am I supposed to trust them with being vulnerable and having a conversation about feeling rejected, you know, on an Mm. intimate level. And then sometimes it's the dishes is not about them intentionally not following through, but again, it could be executive function challenges. It could be really related yeah. to the autism. Um, it could be the sensory issues around, you know, what it feels like to do the dishes. It may be that they're they're not ready yet to. They have to finish all these other things before they can get to it. Um, so there's lots of things that are going on that are invisible to both people. Lots of thoughts, lots of reasons. And neither is wrong. You know, it, get that, it gets back to that duck bunny that we talked about in an earlier uh, discussion about two equally valid perspectives, but maybe each person is only seeing one and they don't even know another one is existing. Yeah. And that was such a good example of how something that starts out as maybe a miscommunication or, a, you know, just a misunderstanding of where, because you guys are in different, you know, people are in different planes, that it ends up almost becoming a breakdown of trust. And so, and that and that's a real deep, I think, break in a relationship where it's not necessarily, oh, I can't trust you to take care of the kid or, you know, something where it's like an obvious level of trust. It's almost like this it's this nuance level where it's something very small, like, oh, you said you were going to do this. And then you didn't. Cause some people, when they hear, I don't trust you, it's such a deep level of, oh my God, like, what did I do? Like, I, I, I mean, I always, you know, I'm taking care of you. I'm taking care of the kids. I'm taking, how can you not trust me? And so even that level of trust of what the word trust means is different, I think for, for individuals. Yeah. And that's a great point. Some, sometimes people have different meanings for words, even in their diverse relationships, and they need to really be open to exploring, like, what do you mean by this word? And what do I need mean by this word? Another example of that one is the word discussion. So sometimes Mm. people will say, you know, I just want to have a discussion with you. And they think what that means is I want to be collaborative. I want to plan this trip together, or I want to talk about what school our kid goes to, or I want to talk about how we're spending our money. I just want to have a discussion. And the other person may understand the word discussion to mean a debate. Mm. And they come to it with uh, counterpoints and, um, you know, playing the devil's advocate and let's look at it this other way. And, Um, You know, and it's just, it just goes so wrong when people don't even know that they're having uh, different meanings for words, because then they don't understand why these things aren't working out the way they each expect it to. And they don't know what they're doing wrong. And they don't think they're doing anything wrong. Right. Um, Each person's just kind of living how they know how to live and using, I mean, even something as simple. I mean, this is, this is not any 
not necessarily related, but like, you know, for, for the longest time, I defined couple as maybe two or three, but couple in the, in the truest sense means two. And that's just like a norm, a regular word that even that has an actual definition can mean something different to somebody. Yes. And so I can't even imagine adding in the whole layer of really having true differences of what a meaning to a word is um, can impact a relationship. Yeah. And it's a really good point. And that brings up uh, when one couple, one person on the, sorry, one person, the couple is very literal and the other person uses words like always or never. Mm. And then the literal person doesn't trust what their partner's saying because if that's wrong, you know, they did it once. Um, How could they say never or they, you know, uh, whatever. So they get really focused on um, believing what each other is saying and feeling like it's not right. It just isn't right. And so one person does speak in generalities or brings in context more and the other person is just really focusing on what's being said in that moment and doesn't generalize from situation to situation. So if there's a little thing that's different, they feel it's a whole new thing. To them, it's not a little thing that's different. It's a it's a big thing. So there's a lot of these nuances that get in the way of clear communication with neurodiverse couples. And so then maybe that's a good segue into then. So once you've maybe identified that, Hey, look, we're really on different pages is I'm I'm assuming that that's kind of what you're, and we, we skipped over your introduction because we, I assumed we, everybody had heard, but it would be helpful to kind of know, you know, your background and, and, um, and how you work with individuals that are maybe in a neurodiverse relationship. Then once you've maybe identified here are some issues because you mentioned early at the top of, of the discussion that you can change behaviors. And so is this part of this, this sort of behavioral um, container, you know, to, that would need to be adjusted? Or is it some of it is, well, there's a wiring kind of component here. And so how do you kind of differentiate what can change versus maybe what can't? Right. Um, so I was trained as a clinical social worker um, over 20 years ago. And through some coincidences, I ended up um, really just working with partners in a neurodiverse relationship um, or couples together. And so for, for 20 years, that's been all I do is focus on this population. I teach therapists how to work with neurodiverse couples. I teach coaches how to coach neurodiverse couples. And I I do the coaching work myself. I do it with groups for just one partner or the other. I do it together. I, you know, any combination, whatever anyone is willing to do, there's value. And so if one person feels that they are in a neurodiverse relationship, but the other one doesn't want to do the work, there's still things that they can do individually that can help. Um, but the best is when you're working with a couple together and you can bring them through the duck bunny image. And for people who are listening to this, just Google duck bunny and then click on images and you'll see a variety of different duck bunny images. And it's a really great picture uh, that represents two equally valid perspectives, which is what a relationship has. And if you can use that as a tool, when you're having a conversation with your partner and you just feel like you're speaking different languages, you're just not understanding each other or you're not getting what you asked for. And it's really confusing because you think you're being really clear to say, you know, I think we're having a duck bunny moment. 
Um, let's just pause and focus on what one person is trying to say, then what the other person is trying to say. And when you do that, don't repeat what you're trying to say in the same words that you've been using. Try it different ways or say three sentences worth of what you're trying to say. And the, you know that will help the other person really try to understand. And once you do understand, then as a team together, figure out what you want to do going forward. Now, let's go back to the example of the partner who's waiting for their um, autistic partner or their you know, neurodivergent partner to come to bed, and they haven't asked for that. They haven't thought they needed to, um, but they're feeling really hurt. Um, and the other partner is thinking, ah, finally, I get some time to do what I need to do. So having the ability to say, um, okay, um, let's do a duck bunny on what our bedtime routine should be, uh, would be helpful. So to say like, okay, this is what I'm, uh, my perspective would be to how to end our day together, that we get into bed together, that we have a little, you know, intimate chat for 10 minutes that we snuggle um, and if we want to have physical intimacy, we can. And then we go to sleep. What is your perspective? The other person might go, wow, um, there's no way that I could have energy for physical intimacy on a weekday, but I do want to. Uh, but that's going to be something I'm going to need to do on a Saturday morning or a Sunday afternoon, I'm going to need to rest up from the work week. Um, or I just need to expect it, I can do that. But I'm right. going to need to expect that if that's what you want to happen on Friday night, then I'm going to need to come home and just chill for a while on my own. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll be able to, you know, be able to do that. Um, so that's like an example, like, you know, but then the other person may say, but also what's been going on for me is it's the only time I have to myself where I know that no one's going to interrupt me. I'm not going to have to communicate. I can hyper-focus on what I need to do and get it done efficiently. And so the other partner has the opportunity to say, oh, I didn't realize you needed that. Well, let's make time for that. And let's say Wednesday nights, I do my own thing and you have the entire night to yourself. Would that work? You know, well, I so might need more than. Yeah. Yeah. But the important thing about this kind of negotiation is that you're always looking for a win win. And mm -hmm. with a compromise, you can often get a lose lose. Right. Oh, so a, interesting. a compromise, yeah. you know, a compromise on this on this example might be why don't you spend two hours doing your stuff and then come to bed and I'll wait up an extra hour for you. Okay. Yeah. No one's, no one's going to get what they want right, from that. Right. Um, because the person isn't going to be able to do their stuff and then show up and it's just getting later and later. And uh, you know, so you really need to say, okay, if you need downtime after a work day, then we need to have a different plan. Um, so that we can do this when we're both most likely to uh, feel that it was um, a good interaction, not just a draining interaction. So it sounds like, you know, a lot of this stuff um, in terms of what to do or how to maybe work through it, I won't say it's a requirement, but it seems like there is a component of having needing some extra 
outside help. And when I say that in terms of a coach or in terms of a therapist, because a lot of what you just mentioned is almost requires you to know what your expectations are. And sometimes I think that's a really hard to even, to even know because it is so intuitive maybe, or it's so un, I don't know what the right word is, but it's just, it's just kind of, I don't know, maybe you have the words to fill in there, but I feel like if you're, especially if you're in a circular, if you've been in this kind of pattern of maybe, you know, your, your example of, of the level of intimacy or, you know, expectations of, of just even like talking after, right. Connecting, then it requires somebody to put into words, something that maybe they just have feelings for. Right. And so that is, I think where maybe a coach like you or somebody else would be helpful to like, to give somebody the words and to give somebody the because it's, it's not even about the tools. It's not even knowing that you need tools, I guess, is, is maybe the point. Right. Absolutely. And I think the work that, you know, the coaches and the therapists that we train have to do uh, a lot is about interpreting for both partners and to be able to put language to those things that are so hardwired that they don't yeah. even know that they have a need, but it's there. And yeah. I think, you know, someone who's experienced in this will know how to do that. Okay. Yeah. Because I wrote down, um, I think in one of your examples, it's uh, you had mentioned like, okay, what's well, even the duck, the duck bunny concept of somebody saying, well, okay, recognizing, well, okay, this is a duck bunny, but then maybe not even if you can't understand the other person and the other person can't understand you, I don't know, can you get to a bridge? I'm not sure. Um, and so maybe that's where the therapy, you know, you almost like put a pin into it and maybe bring it up at a at a separate time. Yeah. I yeah. I think that's a great idea. Okay. Um, one of the things I wanted to kind of go back to, uh, I wrote down is this, uh, when individuals need their downtime and you see, like, you know, you mentioned special interest and, you know, you mentioned gaming and all this kind of stuff. Since you've been in this for a while, I'm curious, have you seen the an evolution of what maybe individuals on the spectrum do to fill their time? Because now we have the advent with social media and YouTube and all the things that you can, anybody honestly can spend hours on, right? Just mindlessly scrolling and then, and the age of binging on, you know, Netflix and having everything at your fingertips, um, which is, you know, now it's been a while. I mean, it seems like not that long, but I'm curious if there, what, what was, what was the sort of before, because, you know, this isn't a new concept, it's more identified, um, but what's been your experience? So are you asking like non-computer ways that people on the spectrum may have yeah. um, uh, these passions? Non-digital um, ways. Yeah. Right. In terms yeah. Of, and specifically, I guess, maybe in terms of a relationship. Um, so if somebody is together and now it's, okay, they'll just find YouTube or something, you know, in, because you can do that anywhere. What were people doing before? So they might've been reading, they might've been listening to music. They might've been playing music. They might've been doing uh, puzzles, Sudoku, you know, there's a lot of other things. They might've been playing bridge um, or chess and, you know, that might need other people to go do things with, um, or they might've been outdoorsy, you know, just taking every opportunity to go for a really long bike ride or to go fishing um, and yeah. not realizing that their partner was, again, having that expectation that on the weekend, okay, you need all work week 
to work and you can't do anything in the evening, but at least on the weekend, then we can have some time together. And then the person goes off for an eight hour bike ride Mm -hmm. um, and comes home exhausted, you know, because that's their time to do their thing or depending on where they live, maybe it's surfing or maybe it's, um, you know, there's so many different things. If someone's really interested in it, sometimes figure out a way to, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Taking classes. Um, I mean, there's a lot of intellectual pursuits that people on the spectrum have, you know, they're very smart and they often need a lot of intellectual stimulation. Um, but others are more really, you know, they like social justice and they want to do activism things and, or they want to, you know, foster puppies um, you know, what, but whatever it is, they can really go all in and be really good at it and want to do a lot of it. But, um, and it's not a bad thing. It gives them a sense of competence and confidence. And it's wonderful because they may not feel that in other areas of their life. So it's not something to be taken away. It's something to be figured out in a way that there's enough for the person who needs that. And then there's enough relationship time as well for the person who needs that. And that's another invisible concept like relationship time. Nobody Mm. really thinks, okay, um, we're done dating. We're now living together. So we see each other all the time. We're in the same room for Mm -hmm. 10 hours a day. What is relationship time? And for people on the spectrum, often the parallel play or the companionship is it meets their need for connection. And for the um, for the neurotypical partner, it's often talking and talking in a particular way, you know, having an empathic response, um, giving emotional support, being able to share about relationship things and even talk about your own relationship with your partner, how you feel that is what builds the intimacy. And uh, for other partners, you know, on the spectrum, usually it's more conversation may be viewed more as an exchange of information. And they may tell you like about an article they read, they may not even put their own opinion into that. They're just giving you information. And they're Mm. not asking for your opinion either. Um, right. Or if they are giving you your, their opinion, they're still not asking for the other person's opinion. So there's no um, moving the dialogue to a place that no one could have anticipated. It's just an expected exchange of, of, of information. I'll tell you what's in my mind to tell you. And now we're done. We've had that conversation. Interesting. And what, so one of the things you, you said is that some are, they've got really intelligent um, brain, right? They're very intelligent. They're very, they're really good in their work capacity and what they do. And so do, do you find that that is almost, um, is why maybe somebody can be in a relationship for so long without really even realizing it because it's, well, you're such a brilliant person. You can do all these things. And I, uh, I think somebody had met, somebody had talked to um, a while back had mentioned, if you walk through, I mean, this is very, you know, anecdotal, but if you walk through an engineering firm or an architecture firm, you know, probably half of them are on the, on the spectrum because for that type of, for that type of career, you, you, it's almost a requirement to be, to have this type of neurology that enables you to, to, um, to see things as different. Yeah. And, and it's even more confusing 
if you overhear your partner on the phone with people at work or in a Zoom meeting or something, and you see them being what looks like very relational, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're applying these skills that they're not applying at home. Um, and it's very confusing. And it, and it leads back to that feeling of it must be me. It must yeah. be personal. Um, he does not or she does not want to or they do not want to engage with with me on that level, but they do it with people at work. Um, but the reason they do do it with people at work and not at home is because, again, it's that masking. It requires so much energy and they know they need to at work and they were taught how to at work and they see the benefit at work. But at mm. home, they just want to be themselves and they just want to not have to work at their relationship. They just want to be and be accepted. Um, so a lot of times, you know, I hear neurotypical partners say, you know, if my partner would just treat me the way they treat their coworkers, we would be fine. You know, um, I think a good place to maybe wrap this is uh, one of the things that I've been able to do is something you mentioned on the last call from, from a resource perspective for individuals that might think that they may be in a neurodiverse relationship or it might be an aspect is um, there's a, a 101 course that you helped, I think, put together. And so if you want to talk about that, because I think that as people listen to this and they may say hmm, that that may be an impact or maybe we're just having quote, normal problems, right? In a neuro, maybe they're both neurotypical and and you're in a relationship and, you know, there's ways to handle that. But if you, if you want to kind of explore this aspect of things, what are some of the resources that couples can can do and go through um, to maybe seek out or get some help and to figure out if this is is actually indeed something that they want to kind of explore? Yeah, that's a great question. So we do have a course called 101 for Couples. And it's usually $299, but um, we've created a coupon code for your listeners that they can get um, a substantial discount if they use that so they can find all that. um, Yes, absolutely. We'll put that in. Yeah. And, and, you know, that course will take them through um, recognizing neurodiversity in their relationship um, and understanding it because once you recognize it, what do you do with it? right? Mm -hmm. And you really have to reframe each other. You have to understand that both people are coming to this with good intentions, no malintent, um, but a certain level of cluelessness about how the other person thinks Mm -hmm. um, and or feels. Um, And so there needs to be kind of a reframing. And sometimes, um, sometimes it's a grieving process for one or both partners, Mm -hmm. which is a difficult thing for some people to understand. Like um, last week I was doing a couples group and the partner on the spectrum said, you know, I don't understand. Uh, My partner says they're grieving. I'm right here. I'm right here. You know, I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't died. I haven't left. So what's this grieving about? You know, and so it's very hard to understand that when you expected your relationship to be a certain way, and then it's not. There is a process where you first are thinking it's a loss. You're never going to have these things. And to your question earlier in our talk, you know, what can and can't change, you don't really know until you try. And the trying um, can be done. Yeah, it could be done, you know, with the help of a therapist or a coach, but to really try to um, pick one thing at a time 
go slow, be concrete, you know, check things out with both people along the way that the interpretation is correct. And then, you know, you may reframe your entire relationship. You may think back to this incident that really hurt you. Like, you know, you expected them to come to bed and they didn't. And it was your honeymoon, you know, even, (laughs) you know, and so, and you never really got over that or you feel like, well, if they don't want to come to bed, I'm not going to initiate intimacy anymore with them. In fact, I'm going to sleep in a separate bedroom because Mm. it's too painful to lie there waiting. Right. Mm. And so, you know, people need to reframe and go, okay, so it wasn't what I thought it was. So maybe now understanding that the other person was going through something or had needs or had, you know, limitations in some way, or didn't know these expectations existed, you know, maybe now I can understand that it won't hurt so much. I can, Mm -hmm. you know, figure out a different way to um, conceptualize what was going on. It wasn't me. It wasn't about not being um, attractive or something. So, you know, but it's, it's hard and it's a process and sometimes it's helpful for partners um, who are with someone on the spectrum to have their own individual therapist who understands the relationship dynamic of a neurodiverse relationship, because, you know, lots of times when they try to tell somebody what they're going through, their feelings get dismissed. Um, And the person may say, but your partner is loyal. They're not cheating on you. They're not an alcoholic. They're not this. They're not that does, does not help. Um, It just makes you feel like you don't get it. You don't understand. You're dismissing. You're saying I shouldn't have these feelings, but I do. And now you're saying there's something wrong with me for having them. Yeah. And, and it even, um, you know, what you brought up an individual therapist, if that individual therapist maybe isn't aware of the neurodiverse or, or that they know it's an issue, you maybe brought it to them, but they themselves don't have that level of training or kind of understanding up to the dynamics. Um, I can see this kind of touches on what we talked about last week is that they may be giving you advice or feedback of things that you could try, but that aren't going to be necessarily helpful or productive because there is this difference that, that isn't typical. Right. Right. Um, And so, so would you recommend individuals finding a therapist on the individual and the couple side that really, I mean, obviously the couple side would, would need to have that neurodivergent training, but from an individual therapist, it sounds like it's just as important. Yes, it really is. And if you can't find a therapist who is either knowledgeable or who is willing to take our training 101 course for therapists to learn about it, um, there are also a lot of groups for just the neurotypical partners um, where they can get support and uh, at least feel you know, validated for what they're going through and uh, get some ideas from, from there as well. Um, for the partners on the spectrum who are interested, um, there are groups for them as well. Um, some are focused on relationships, like the one that I offer. Others at AANE, the Asperger Autism Network, they are more focused on just, um, you know, coming to to understand oneself and accept oneself as understanding their neurology as well. And so there's lots of different groups. There are groups for Um, people based on age or based on gender or based on um, experience of how, you know, if you're new to the diagnosis and you're just learning about it, 
Um, no formal diagnosis is necessary for any of these groups, by the way. And there's also social groups and interest groups, you know, like trivia and streaming mm -hmm. movies together and an art uh, collaborative and all kinds of other ways to just be around people on the spectrum um, and sort of build your self-esteem by meeting others with the same uh, yeah. differences. So. Oh, that's great. So we'll definitely put all the, the links to the resources and also I'll, um, we'll put the coupon code up as well that will give you a discount on this 101 class that was mentioned. Um, I was able to watch it and I think it does give such great information. It's, I think it's, it's really helpful to, to be aware because even if you're not in a neurodivergent relation, a neurodiverse relationship, you may be interacting with people that are on um, the spectrum and it just gives so much insight and also um, kind of normalizes everything. It's just, you know, there there's nine couples on this um, 101 training and they just talk about kind of some of the challenges and then really just kind of their day-to-day -day things that are, that you wouldn't, if, if you're not aware of the difference, right? It's only until you start, maybe if you've seen black and white for so long, all of a sudden now you start seeing in color. Um, and so it really is that impactful. So I would encourage people to just watch it it's three hours and whether if you're in a relationship or you know somebody or even your your parents might have been in a relationship kind of helps explain a lot of things quite frankly yeah um and so uh so that that was so that was really great and we'll, we'll put that all and so i wanted to end on maybe um, a positive note if you can maybe talk about or mention in terms of your the individuals that you've worked with where you've seen the successes of individuals that have been on the earlier form of their because we, we mentioned on the last time that people can be married 50 years before they even know that this is an issue. And so what's your, maybe what's your experience? What's your hope? What's your wish for people that are kind of this, I don't want to term it success rates, but where they've gotten to a, a place of real connection and is it, you know, sustained and is it long-term? Like, have you, have you had those experiences? Do people keep in touch with you? Yeah. Well, um, a lot of the group members keep coming back and they will say, you know, their relationship has, has improved a lot. Um, they are more accepting not only of their partner's differences, but also of their own needs. And mm. they have figured out ways if their partner can't meet them to try to get them met other ways. So they're not putting so much of a burden on their partner. If there's, you know, if they can get some needs met by friends or by pursuing their own interests in some ways, but also, you know, a lot of the successful couples appreciate the neurodiversity in their relationship. Mm. You know, they'll say that their partner does things that nobody else can do. Um, they'll appreciate that one person has superpowers in one area and the other partner has superpowers in another area. And as a that. couple, you know, it, it really takes care of a lot for, for both to know that they could rely on the other person. Um, and I've heard some incredible stories, you know, one partner got Lyme disease and didn't know it. Oh, wow. And the other partner you know, it became their special interest to try to figure out what was going on with their partner and to heal them, oh, wow. you know, and so they just dove into all kinds of research and all kinds of treatment and all kinds of, you know, their brain was able to distill massive amounts of information that was controversial and, um, and ultimately healed them, you know, oh, wow. found, you know, and so they kind of feel like they saved their lives. Um, mm -hmm. And other partners will 
just bring such, you know, the neurotypical partner can bring such fulfillment of a social life to a partner on the spectrum where they wouldn't be able to do that themselves, but they really appreciate that. So really, you know, appreciating each other for what you do bring to the table um, is really a key to being happy in your relationship, I think. That's a one. That's a, I think that's a wonderful place to to end this. It's just like that grateful concept of and being able to pull out the the things that you just mentioned of that that are we are quote superpowers. So I really I really like that. Um, well, thank you, Grace. This was um, this was really great. I'm so I'm, I'm really thankful that you're participated in this show, and I hope that um, individuals that are listening really get a lot out of it. If they have any questions, we'll put your information out there as well. People can reach out to you. You are in quite a, you do quite a lot with the AANE network, and there's a lot of information and resources out there. So we'll put everything in the show notes. This has been great. Thank you very much, and thanks for listening. You're so welcome. Take care. Bye. Well, That really does it for this three-part series in neurodiversity, specifically as it relates to relationships. I hope that you gained something out of this, learned something, maybe took the course that we've referred to in in this series, the Couples 101 course from the AANE website, or um, if it's not relevant for you, that maybe you've been, you've, you've seen or you've been a part of somebody's life that has had some challenges in the relationship and it didn't really quite click as to maybe what's going on um, to recommend the the podcast series as well as the course because at the end of the day this is just trying to help individuals potentially sort through a pretty difficult phase in their life and as you had heard you know people can be married for decades without ever really knowing what's going on. Your parents might have been in a neurodiverse relationship and it may have impacted not only their relationship, but the relationship with their kids and therefore you. And that kind of relationship matters and really impacts the individual. And so if you're in a, going through in a relationship where you've been impacted by this relationship, just kind of reframing you know, your parents' relationships and maybe how they handled certain things when you were around could be profound for you and you can do some healing of your own. So it's not, you know, this really topic is really to kind of crack the egg open and hopefully you can hear what people are going through and maybe something that you went through yourself without ever even realizing it. The idea is just to get the information out there, find resources, help people connect because that's what parents connecting is all about. Until next time, happy connecting.